Guardian Unlimited. Order. Questions to the Prime Minister. Sally Keeble. Question number one, Mr Speaker. Mr Speaker, sir, before listening my engagements, as the House will know, there has been fierce fighting in the south of Afghanistan in which UK troops are being deployed with considerable courage and commitment on their part. And I know that the whole House will want to join with me in sending our profound condolences to the family and friends of those that have fallen. Guardsman Daniel Proben of the 1st Battalion Grenadier Guards, Corporal Darren Bonner of the 1st Battalion the Royal Anglican Regiment, and Corporal Mike Gilliatt of the Royal Military Police. This country should be very proud of the sacrifice that they have made. Mr Speaker, sir, this morning I had meetings with ministerial colleagues and others. In addition to my duties in the House, I will have further such meetings later today. Sally Keeble. Uh, can I associate myself and my constituents with the expressions of condolence um, for the families of the um, service personnel lost in action? Um, would my right honourable friend join me in congratulating the Northampton Climate Change Forum, with, which has its first meeting tomorrow evening under the excellent chairmanship of Terry Smithson of our local Wildlife Trust? And as my right honourable friend heads off to the G8, can he say what message he has for climate change campaigners in Northampton and elsewhere as to what he hopes to be achieved in Germany? Yeah. Well, First of all, uh, can I, I, I uh, congratulate the Northampton Climate Change Forum, the work they do, which shows the, the interest that is taken this, in this issue in constituencies and communities up and down the country. And I think what will be important um, at the G8 is that for the first time we managed to get agreement um, on the science of climate change and the fact that it is human activity that is causing it. Secondly, that we managed to get agreement that there should be a new global deal that involves all the main players, including America and China, when the Kyoto Protocol expires in 2012. And thirdly, that at the heart of that has to be um, a global target for a substantial reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. And that should be followed through through the United Nations process. So I believe that those are the, the key things we need out of um, the G8 agenda. And I hope my honourable friend doesn't mind me also saying, however, that I don't think we should forget in this the necessity also of keeping to our commitments on Africa. David Cameron. Thank you, Mr Speaker. I join the Prime Minister in paying tribute to Corporal Mike Gilliatt, Corporal Dan Darren Bonner and Guardsman Daniel Probin, who were all killed in Afghanistan. They died serving their country. Tonight, the House of Lords will vote on proposals to help the 125,000 people who are suffering because their pension schemes went bust. The government fund set up to support these people has so far only helped just over 1,000 people, and yet it's cost £10 million to administer. Will the Prime Minister confirm those figures? Actually, the, the total amount of the fund over, over the years to come will be some £8 billion. And we have, for the first time, of course, there used to be no help available to people in this situation. There is help available now. And the difficulty, the difficulty with the House of Lords amendment, and we've had this exchange now several times, is that unless we can be sure we can keep to those commitments within the £8 billion uh, that has been set aside by the government, it's completely irresponsible to hold out the promise that we can go up to 100% if we're not able to do so. 
Drama. The Prime Minister won't confirm the figures, but I have to say they are completely unacceptable. Yes, we have had this exchange before, and when I raised this with the Prime Minister two months ago, he promised a review of the unclaimed assets, and he said he would try to get the maximum compensation level. What are the results of that review? And does he recognise that tonight's vote is probably the last chance he's got as Prime Minister, without any long-term spending commitment, to right the wrong that's been done to these people? First of all, let me just make one thing clear to the uh, Right Honourable Gentleman. There are over 100,000 people that will benefit from this. There used to be absolutely nothing for these people at all. Secondly, let me just point out to him that the reason we have not gone beyond 80%, the reason that we haven't, is that it is wrong to promise that we can go further than that unless we can say how it is paid for. And the Treasury loan scheme that has been put forward, or this idea of unclaimed assets, we simply cannot, on that basis, make future spending commitments outside of the £8 billion. It isn't sensible and it isn't responsible. But to suggest that we are not helping people, yes, it's true, over a thousand people have already been helped, but in the years to come there will be tens of thousands more. The reason the government scheme was set up is because so many pension schemes went bust under his government. pensioners need is help now. Thousands of them have reached retirement age. And I have to say to the Prime Minister, when the Maxwell crisis was sorted out, the government of... Yes! 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 When the Maxwell crisis was sorted out, the government of the day used a Treasury loan to advance money to them without putting long-term costs on the Exchequer. Why doesn't the Prime Minister do the same thing now? It is not possible to do this unless we set aside the money now, because what we cannot do is promise people we're going to pay them more for their pensions over and above an £8 billion commitment for the first time given to people, which will allow us to compensate them for 80%. And to end up promising more without saying where the money comes from is an idea I might describe as completely delusional. Nigel Griffiths. Will will the Prime Minister join me in welcoming any decision by Edinburgh University to strip Robert Mugabe of his honorary degree? And, and, And will he ensure that neither Mugabe nor any of his henchmen are permitted to come with visas to Britain until democracy is fully restored to that country? Well, first of all, I can confirm to my uh, honourable friend that is indeed uh, our position in relation to uh, the visas and in relation to the decision of Edinburgh University. Of course, it's a decision for the university, but I entirely endorse the sentiments that he's expressed. Sir Mingus Campbell. I join the Prime Minister in his expressions of condolence and support for those who have lost their lives in the service of our country. With 200,000 people killed, and two million displaced from their homes, what can the people of Darfur expect from the G8? I hope what uh, they can expect is a recommitment to sanctions if the um, Sudanese government do not abide by the peace accord that has been set out, stop bombing their citizens, and the Sudanese government should also welcome in the hybrid Africa Union United Nations force, which is the only way we're going to keep the combatants um, apart. In addition to that, of course, it's important that those rebel groups also abide by uh, that peace accord, and I'm sure that Darfur will be raised in the course of the G8. Sir Mingus Campbell, isn't it time not only for tougher sanctions against the Sudanese government, but for a much more effective arms embargo 
and in addition much better logistical support for the African Union mission. Will the Prime Minister tell the other members of the G8 that we cannot afford another Rwanda? And it's precisely for that reason that uh, as a result actually of in part the pressure from, from this government that we have an African Union force in there. We are giving it logistic support. Uh, it's true that we need to do more as I've said myself but what is necessary is, I mean, the arms embargo in this instance, I'm afraid, will, will, will not meet the issue. What will is building up the Africa Union's peacekeeping capability. Now, one of the things we will discuss at the, the G8 is the progress we have made since uh, Glen Eagles, where, for example, the UK alone has been involved in training some 11,000 peacekeepers in Africa. But the only solution to this is a strong Africa Union peacekeeping force that is able to be deployed in these situations. Now, Darfur has not slipped into being Rwanda yet, but he's right. It is a parlous situation, and it is essential we take action, and that's the action we will be pressing for. Andrew Desmore, this week marks the 40th anniversary of the Arab-Israeli war. What does my honourable friend think can be done now to try and resurrect the peace process? And would he agree that the university and college unions boycotting of Israeli universities is misguided, undermines academic freedom, and contributes absolutely nothing to trying to bring peace to the Middle East? Um, well, as for uh, the boycott, I, I entirely agree with what he, he says, and I hope very much that that decision is, is, is overturned, because it does absolutely uh, no good for the peace process or indeed for relations in that part of the world. Where he is right, of course, is in emphasising that the only solution ultimately is to relaunch um, the framework for a negotiated peace with a two-state solution at the heart of it, and that's what we will be working on in the time to come. David Cameron. Yeah. Thank you, Mr Speaker. The G8 agreed at Glen Eagles that by 2010, everyone suffering from HIV-AIDS would have access to the medicines that they need. Will the Prime Minister confirm that, very sadly, almost three-quarters of sufferers still don't have access to that treatment? Um, there are, of course, one million more that get treatment, but he's right in saying we need to go further. That is why uh, the commitment, of course, is to do this by 2010. I hope we will recommit um, at the Heiligen Dam Summit for the G8. In addition, um, the American announcement, which is to double their HIV-AIDS spending from $15 billion to $30 billion, is extremely important. The Germans are now committed an extra 3 billion euros of aid to Africa over the next four years. This is also important. Um, and, of course, this country is, is making a huge contribution to fighting HIV-AIDS. So, yes, we need to go further, but it's important to realize that as a result of what was done at Glen Eagles, there are a million more people now getting treatment. Charities like ActionAid believe the specific proposals actually set out in the draft communique don't go nearly far enough, and they believe that the goal agreed at Glen Eagles is on the verge of collapsing, which would result in millions of preventable deaths. We've long argued for interim targets, as the Prime Minister knows. Does he agree that it would be a disaster if the current wording in the communique is allowed to stand? We are... Um, trying to strengthen that language and, and put some specifics, particularly in relation to HIV-AIDS treatment. But I think it's important always because, of course, for very obvious natural reasons, pressure groups will always say not enough is being done or the situation is in danger of collapse. But since Glen Eagles, we've had almost $40 billion worth of debt relief. We've had substantial increases in aid, including to Africa. We've had millions more children into primary education, and we have, as I say, got a million extra people getting HIV-AIDS treatment. Now, as I saw for myself last week in South Africa, the possibility, if we expand the use of drugs for those people, is that we can save millions of lives. We have to do it. Um, but it's precisely to get those types of commitments that we will go to the G8 and negotiate. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. 
Uh, I would like to congratulate my honourable right honourable friend for engaging in dialogue with the uh, with some of the most distinguished Muslim leaders and, and scholars from around the world in a recent conference at Lancaster House. He rightly he rightly wants the authentic and the true voice of Islam to be heard in Britain. How does he believe that he can achieve that? I think that, that uh, first of all, I thank my honourable friend for the work that he has done in this area. But I think what is interesting and came out very strongly from the, the two-day conference is that the moderate and reasonable voice of Islam is the majority voice of Islam. And it is not enough heard, but what was interesting was that people around the world, including some of the most distinguished Islamic scholars, were making it quite clear they wanted to have no truck whatever with extremism. Tim Lawton. Yeah. 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 Mr. Speaker, 15% of school-aged children are obese and underage drinking has doubled. Yesterday... Yesterday, the Children's Society said that 43% of parents are scared to let their children out with their friends and schools have become exam factories contributing to the one in ten children suffering mental health problems to which his solution is to force four-year-olds to take exams in mental health. Is the Prime Minister proud of his legacy of the state of our children or is he just not bothered? Yeah. I, think, I think he's a trifle exaggerating the situation. <laughs> I mean, of course there are, are, are pressures on, on, on our children today, and pressures through exams, pressures through um, the types of things that they get access to a lot, a, a lot earlier than generations gone by. But I have to say that the majority of young people that I meet are also um, working hard, are extremely responsible, decent members of society, and behave very well. There is a minority uh, that either misbehave or are socially excluded. We need specific measures in order to, to, to help them. But I don't think the debate about this is... is helped by that type of hyperbole, if he doesn't mind me saying so. Does my right honourable friend accept that amongst the very important reforms and changes which have occurred on his watch in the last ten years has been freedom of information? And why should Parliament alone be in a position to contract out of the law of, of all the public bodies in this country? And can my right honourable friend give an explanation why the two front benches are supporting this private member's bill when in fact he should be thrown in a dustbin? Uh, I'm sort of... Because I, because I have enormous uh, respect for my honourable friend, because it may be the last time he's asking me a question, Prime Minister's questions, I don't want to disagree with him. Um, but if I was really pushed to, I think I might. Um, I, I have to say to him that I, I do think it's important that, and I think this has been made clear, that, that for um, things like expenses and so on, Parliament continues to, to, to have MPs being very open about it. I think that is a consensus. But I do also think that there is a huge amount of scrutiny that is given by this House and about members of Parliament here, and I don't think we should actually apologise for what we do in this House. Mark Lancaster. Does the Prime Minister agree that if communities like Milton Keynes are to be truly sustainable, final decisions on their expansion should be made by democratically elected local authorities, not unelected, unaccountable quangos? Of course, uh, the local decision-making is very important, but I, I hope he also agrees with me that if we are to deal with housing issues um, in our country today, we do, because of the expansion of the number of households, also have to expand the availability of housing. So I agree there has to be a balance struck here, 
But that balance is going to have to include proposals that do allow us to make sure that our people, particularly our younger people, have houses to buy. Jeff Innes. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Um, the £25 per week age addition uh, to state pensions for the over 80s has remained at the same level since 1971. Does the Prime Minister agree with me that the time is now right to review this derisory amount and perhaps should the government give consideration to, say, adding an additional £25 month sum to the winter fuel allowance as an alternative? I mean, these are obviously decisions that have to be taken at the time of the budget. But I, I would say to my honourable friend that Although I entirely understand the point he makes, I think over the past 10 years we are now spending on an annual basis something like £11 billion a year extra for our pensioners. Uh, they have the winter fuel allowance. They, of course, have the free TV licences for the over 75s. They have a very uh, substantial uplift in, in many of the payments that are made through the pension credit. And I think there's one other thing that I think is worth just pointing out, that over the next few years, of course, we will move to a situation where the basic state pension is relinked to earnings. And that will, of course benefit many of our pensioners to a far greater degree even than an extra £25. Paul Rowan. Can the Prime Minister tell the House what the evidence is for his assertion that closing or downgrading A&Es like Rochdale saves lives? In respect of each of these decisions, they've got to be taken on the basis of, of local conditions. But what people will say, and this is driven by clinicians, not actually in, re in relation to cost, is that for some of the most serious illnesses for emergencies, like stroke or heart disease, it is actually better for people to be treated by paramedics in an ambulance and then taken to a specialised unit. And therefore, the idea of changing accident and emergency, like maternity services or paediatrics, is driven by the fact there is increasing specialised provision that does the best for patients. And I do ask him to take account of that. The Prime Minister will be talking with Mr Putin at the G8 and discussing the Litvinenko case. We have other problems with Russia, the threat to target missiles at European cities, the fact that Shell and BP have effectively been renationalised there, the boycott of trade with Poland. All of these are grave and troubling signs of a different approach from Russia. Can the Prime Minister talk, frankly, to Mr Putin about these problems? We want partnership with Russia on Iran, on Kosovo and other issues. And also talk, for, frankly, with his European partners, because it is European unity and sticking together that will achieve it. Oh, Prime Minister. Um, well, there will be an opportunity, of course, to talk to President Putin at the summit. Um, I've always had good relations with President Putin. We want good relations with Russia. But that can only be done uh, on the basis that there are certain shared principles and shared values. And the consequence, if, if there aren't, uh, is not that, and there's no point in making hollow threats um, against Russia, um, the consequence is that people in Europe uh, will want to minimise the business they do with Russia if that happens. And I, I, I personally think a close relationship between Europe and Russia is important, but it will only be a sustainable relationship if it's based on those shared values. Reverend Willie McCree. Thank you, Mr Speaker. The Prime Minister will know that Sinn Féin members have taken their place on the policing board in Northern Ireland. However, does the Prime Minister agree with me that it is totally unacceptable that a party that has members on the policing board also has membership of leading members on the Provisional IRA Terrorist Army Council? Will the Prime Minister therefore agree to take urgent steps to have this matter effectively dealt with? I think the most important thing is that whoever is on the police board and whoever is taking part 
in the politics of Northern Ireland does so on the basis of complete, complete commitment to democracy and exclusively peaceful means. And that applies to everybody. So that is the central test, and it is a test monitored, as he knows, by the Independent Monitoring Commission. Shona McIsaac. Although, although sorely tempted to ask my right honourable friend about grammar schools, I've decided. Friend, if he has read the Select Committee report on coastal towns and the problems many of them face, for example, isolation, outward migration of talented young people, and also higher capacity benefit claimants, would he continue to liaise with his ministers about coming forward with a coherent national strategy to tackle these problems in coastal towns? First of all, um, the point that my uh, honourable friend raises about co coastal towns is a very important one because sometimes, uh, although there is a lot of focus on inner city regeneration, um, people forget that some of the coastal towns have large numbers of people who are either socially excluded or, or unemployed and the local economy can be difficult. It's precisely for that reason that we are looking at what more we can do um, to support our coastal towns and also to make sure that the £20 billion that we are spending on regeneration, that a fair proportion of that gets to coastal towns and allows them to develop their local economy uh, and provide, frankly, uh, for an economy that is sustainable in the future. John Redwood. Why did carbon dioxide emissions in the UK and the EU both rise last year whilst falling in the United States of America, and what is the government going to do about it? Um, it's correct that there was a small rise here and indeed elsewhere in Europe. It's precisely for that um, reason that, that we have agreed a new framework for the European emissions trading system. And I know he may find it uh, hard to support anything with the word European in it, but it is nonetheless important, I think, to recognise that it's only through that trading scheme we are going to make um, a difference. And the fact that the European Council has now set very ambitious targets for CO2 emissions and greenhouse gas emissions is extremely important. Incidentally, of course, we will, this country, meet our Kyoto targets under the Kyoto Treaty. Adrian Bailey. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. In my own local authority of Sandwell, there has been enormous demand for the places in the new Sandwell Academy. That is also reflected in uh, demand for other proposed academies. Does my right honourable friend agree with me that this is a reflection of a developing consensus that excellence in education can be delivered without academic selection? Will he seek to build upon this consensus, which I believe is both public and political? Um, well, uh, I mean, there certainly, I, I thought there was a developing consensus. It's faltered a little uh, in the last <laughs> few days or so. But, but I, I think that, that the Academy programme um, is proving, with parents, um, to be a real plus, a real success story. It is managing to provide excellent education for some of the poorest communities in the country. But my honourable friend is absolutely right. It is part of a change throughout schools in our country where there's been massive capital investment, better results, where as a result of the investment and reform, 
We now have a situation totally different from a few years back where the vast majority of our children are getting educated well. We need to go further. We know that we do, but the fact is education in this country has been transformed in the last decade. Philip Holloborn. Mr Speaker, it's government policy that in the next 15 years a substantial part of the green space in the borough of Kettering is to be concreted over with the number of dwellings to increase by a massive one-third. Given the government's alleged newfound commitment to localism, does the Prime Minister think it's fair that effectively local residents have absolutely no say over whether this development proceeds or not? Yeah. As I said to his honourable friend earlier, I mean, first of all, um, the green belt, of course, is being protected. We have far more development now on brownfield development. That is absolutely right. But we do need to build more homes. And if the Conservative Party is saying that we need to give help to first-time buyers, help to those who need to get into the housing market, help for people in order to make sure that we have proper housing. It cannot say that in general, and then in particular oppose every development in housing that there is in different parts of the country. And I'm afraid it simply shows me that the Conservative Party, in this area of policy, as in many others, still just haven't worked it out. Thank you, Mr Speaker. I don't suppose my right honourable friend will have time between now and the 27th of June to visit Bristol, but if he did, he'd be able to see for himself the stunning new schools that Liam built under the Building Schools Future Programme, and in particular the first BSF school in the country, which is due to open this summer at Speedwell. Will the Prime Minister join me in urging the 27% of parents who at the moment take their children out of the state sector at the age of 11? Will he join me in urging them to come and visit these fantastic new school buildings, see what they've got to offer, and give Bristol schools a second chance? Well, I think my honourable friend is absolutely right in saying uh, that the opportunity now exists because there are many hundreds of schools now up and down the country with, with results on, on GCSEs that's well over 70%. In addition, of course, there have been thousands of refurbishments, some 2,500 extra sports facilities, and we've got the biggest school building programme underway that this country has ever seen. And the result of that, of course, is that the standards are improving as well. And the great thing about many of these uh, new schools, and I've visited several of them myself just recently, is that they are designed differently. The whole look of them is different. The children feel for the first time that they are in an environment which really is going to encourage them to do better and to learn. And this is all about our programme and our commitment of providing excellence not just for a few but for all. Yeah. Mr Speaker, the whole House will, I know, want to join me in warmly congratulating the Prime Minister on his appointment, uh, on his appointment last week as the Supreme Chief for Peace by the people of Sierra Leone. Does he expect to pick up some similar ap applauded from the people of Iraq? <laughs> I think the best people sometimes to speak about Iraq are the elected politicians there. And I would refer him to the press conference, which unsurprisingly was not covered at all, that the President of Iraq gave just a few weeks ago here, where he said, however difficult the situation was because of the terrorists, we should never forget what it was like under Saddam. And if terrorists try to stop the country getting democracy, we should be standing up to them and fighting them, not giving in to them. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Uh, ask older residents of Stafford constituency their top concern, and most would say the fear of losing their post offices. Can the Government and Post Office Limited hurry up, hurry up and announce which post offices have been considered for closure so that, conversely, reassurance can be given about the majority that are staying open and, 
And for those at risk, can the government accept responsibility to do all they can to preserve postal services for older people through co-location of services, outreach and innovative ways of providing services like social enterprise and community shops? I think the, the point that my honourable friend makes is, is absolutely right and totally reasonable because the, the way forward, I mean, we are putting a huge investment, some £2 billion, uh, into supporting our post office network. But as he rightly implies, there are changes going on that mean that the way that post offices operate, if they're to be viable in the future, um, that has to change. Uh, and therefore, what we're trying to do, and we will try and identify as quickly as possible those post offices at, at, at risk and not. But he's absolutely right in saying there's no point in kidding ourselves. We have got to find new ways of making that network viable, um, new ways of ensuring that people can use it to do a, a further range of transactions uh, than they can at the present time, but not close our eyes to the inevitable fact that I'm afraid a lot more people now take their money through their bank account and not the post office. There is a viable future there, but it will have to be on the basis of the changes suggested. Sir Nicholas Winterton. Mr. Speaker. The right honourable gentleman, the Prime Minister, has brought great style and great flair to the high office which he has held for ten years. Will he leave office with honour uh, by giving an assurance in this House today that he will hand over no further powers or competence, uh, competences to the European yeah. Union yeah. without the referendum right. which I believe he has promised to the people of the United Kingdom. Yeah. Um, I thank him for his opening remarks. Uh, as he knows, uh, my belief is that we do not need a constitutional treaty, that we should have a simplified and amending treaty, and I can assure him all the red lines that we have set out we will protect for this country. But it is, but it is in the interests of this country also that we find a way of Europe operating more effectively at 27 than it can under rules designed for 15 or less. Andrew Miller. Two days, two days ago, uh, two days ago, General Motors had their most advanced hydrogen-powered car in the Palace of Westminster for colleagues to see. Over the last few months, the government did a tremendous amount of work led by our right honourable friend, the Chancellor, to ensure that General Motors succeeded, delivered investment into Ellesmere Port. Can we have an assurance that the government will continue in this work to help promote those new modern technologies and, uh, and agree, will he agree with me that there is no incompatibility between the development of vehicle building and uh, climate change issues delivered by those kind of hydrogen technologies? Well, um, first, of all, I would, first of all, I would congratulate um, my honourable friends' constituents in, in the work that they are doing in, in the car industry, but also in finding environmentally beneficial ways um, of ensuring that, that um, the car fleet is modernised to take account of the, the pressures of climate change. Uh, we are actually investing um, several million pounds in looking into the research in the, in the hydrogen fuel cell technology. And I've got no doubt at all that partly actually as a result of agreeing that we will have a global target this week at the G8, that there will be a big impetus put behind these types of technologies for the future. I certainly hope that we can do so.
Guardian Unlimited.